Hi, everyone. This Quarium episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. We'll link the exact URL in the show notes, so click on the link, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, let's dive into this thought-provoking topic. Hi there, Quarium listeners. Today, we have a case that is not necessarily dynastically challenging like the past episodes, but it's a case that got me thinking about other aspects of clinical reasoning, and I'm hoping to share what I learned with you. In the past episodes, we have touched on some clinical reasoning topics that you probably have heard of many times by now. Fast versus slow thinking, problem representation, illness script, diagnostic schema, etc. But I've been thinking, we usually talk about those concepts as if our brains were isolated entities that are just co-independent processors of clinical information. But that's not the case. A lot of the times, my ability to think is very much affected by many contextual and environmental factors. You're right, Cindy. We simply don't reason in a vacuum. And in this episode, we hope to convince you that the ability to recognize, adjust, and counter these external factors is a distinct form of expertise, one that we see in a lot of excellent physicians, though we might not always appreciate it, and certainly one that's worth honing in its own right. What quite I am, I'm Cindy Fain, here with my co-host Zhang Huang, and this is Hoofbeats. Stay with us for the case. So I was working the medicine consult shift one day when I received a phone call. Hi, I'm calling from the labor and delivery floor. I have a new consult for you. This is a 36-year-old Gravita 1 Para 1 with a past medical history of vasoprevia and elevated serum alpha-feta protein. So what happened was earlier this week, she was at her 28-week routine ultrasound and it showed, unfortunately, an intrauterine fetal demise. So she was admitted to us for induction labor. She was found to be hypertensive to the 180s over 100s and possibly in help. We induced her with oxytocin, delivered in the OR yesterday. Interop, she got IV labetalol. Her BPs are doing better now. So the reason actually for the consult is she's hyponatremic. Her sodium this morning is 119, down from 134 on admission just 20 hours ago. So we did repeat the sodium and it's still low. It's at 117 now, just around her out. She doesn't have any past medical history, past surgical history, no home meds except for prenatal vitamins. Right now, she's on a magnesium drip for her preeclampsia. She's also gotten nifedipine, oxycodone, NSAIDs, along with the oxytocin I mentioned intra-op. In terms of her vitals, she's afebrile. Her BPs are 120s, 140s systolic. Her heart rates are 60s to 80s. She's adding 96% on room air. She has pitting edema to her shins bilaterally. In terms of her labs, for the most part, they're stable to better today. White count 13. Her platelets are stable at 84. AST over ALT stable at 71 over 77. Everything else looks pretty normal. So yeah, we'd love your help if you could take a look at her. Help us with her hyponatremia. Thanks. I think every time the consult phone rings, there's always uh, an increase in heart rate by about 10 to 20 beats per minute. Orthostatics kick in, I guess. And then when it's a call from labor and delivery, it goes up even more. For this case specifically, this one was even harder for me because it's hyponatremia. That's Dr. Aaron Mitnick, who was the director of co-management, a senior hospitalist and a consult medicine expert at NYU. 
Yeah, he is a very experienced clinician in consultative medicine. And actually, I was once Aaron's med student, and I can tell you, it is very hard for me to imagine him actually becoming tachycardic when the phone rings. He's just being modest. Similarly, I bet he's also being humble about hyponatremia being something that's difficult for him. Though I do hear that comment frequently from both learners and experienced physicians alike. Even though I know for sure everyone has encountered this problem many, many times. Dr. Huang, you recently participated in the core IM hyponatremia episodes, no? What's your comfort level with it? I comfort level. Uh, I would characterize it as an enemy. <laughs> it's still an enemy, but it's one I feel like I've grown familiar with, perhaps even somewhat fond of. Whenever I see a sodium of 130, I think to myself, oh, it's you again, a frenemy. So yeah, I'm curious. Let us see how Dr. Mednick approaches this case. I'm very concerned about this patient. And so I'm definitely going to go see this patient, of course. I'm not going to delay going to see her. I need to see what she looks like. I'm pretty concerned that there's something complex going on and she's going to need frequent monitoring of labs. She might need very careful monitoring of I's and O's and various intravenous fluids, maybe even hypertonic saline. And we're not going to want to move slowly on this. So I think that's important to figure out early out is a disposition. How sick do we think this woman is? And what is the risk of something getting worse for cerebral edema, getting worse or developing seizures or actual eclampsia? I'm anticipating I'm not going to be seeing this patient alone. Right off the bat, I'm already concerning that this patient is going to need to change levels of care. I'm probably going to recommend discussion with critical care at the same time that I see this patient and I can work with them. Management is very crucial because if we spend too much time in a diagnostic realm at this point, we could miss the boat. So Dr. Mitnick's initial response is very different from our past discussions, right? All our expert discussions in the past sort of dissect information in the traditional academic conference style. The patient's not right there in front of them. They are not under any kind of pressure. The discussion is more academic than anything. Dr. Mitnick here, though, he's not performing slow analytic reasoning while smoking a pipe on an armchair. He's entered a state of heightened vigilance and choosing to make management plans first based on his assessment of the situation. I got to say it's a lot more realistic and similar to my reaction when I got the call. So we would say that our discussant is exhibiting appropriate situational awareness. And that's a piece of jargon that we have probably heard a lot in handoffs and discussions about patient safety. Obviously, I'm simplifying it to the point of butchering it. But the situation awareness theory as proposed by Inslee in 1995 basically says we appreciate environmental factors form a perception of what's going on, and then determine the appropriate problem-solving strategy. Situation awareness is something that precedes, prepares, and primes our mode of thinking. When we sense a situation that calls for it, we enter a hypervigilant state. So this theory feels naturally relevant to fields in which critical thinking is too often hamstrung by limited information, time pressure, high stakes. So anesthesia, emergency medicine, crit care, surgery. Some training programs have even tried to improve the situational awareness of their trainees, whether by teaching them to recognize critical cues in their environment or by modifying their surroundings to minimize the demands on their working memory. To quote Ensley directly, situation awareness is largely affected by a person's goals and expectations, which will influence how attention is directed, how information is perceived, and how it is interpreted. And I thought that applies here. 
in real life, after some panicked discussion with the primary team, I was told that they already consulted the ICU team. Um, the quick care doctors were wrapped up in an emergent case, but they were gonna come and evaluate the patient for escalation of care. The consult question for me was that they wanted someone to help guide the diagnostic steps while waiting for the ICU team to come. If I volunteer that information. Doctor Mitnick's first reactions would probably have been more relaxed, more focused on the diagnostic approach, right? Here, Doctor Mitnick was forced to start thinking: How well the OB floor can do intake and output? How often can they draw blood? Is the level of care appropriate? Just a lot of information to process in a short period of time because he was led to believe the goal of the council was the overall management of this hyponatremic patient. And as you can tell, the content of his reasoning was drastically altered because of that. So I think what you're saying is bringing up an interesting point here, Cindy. In consultative medicine, it's actually not always clear what you're supposed to be doing. When we're managing our own patients as members of the primary team, our responsibilities are broad but comparatively well defined and concrete. Right? Interview the patient, reconcile med list, adjust fank dose. And certainly when you are discussing at a case conference or indeed on a podcast episode, it is very obvious what is expected of you. You talk smart, you sit up straight, dispense wisdom, truth, and the diagnosis. But every time the consult pager goes off, someone who's in Dr. Mednick's role has to figure out, what am I being asked to do? What should I do? Do I approach this case as a problem of fundamentally of diagnosis or is this a problem of management? What's my appropriate level of involvement here? Am I expected to advise or to give my assent or to advocate for a particular action? Figuring all of this out takes up cognitive bandwidth. So, if we accept that having clearly defined rules and expectations affect both the mode and the content of our thinking, how do we apply that knowledge to our daily clinical life to make improvements? Well, for starters. I think this means that when we call a consultant, we ought to do this kind of thinking for them as much as possible. Right? Make our questions, our expectations, and our goals very explicit. I also learned to clarify consult questions when I take consults too. Honestly, this is not just limited to asking and taking consults. When I have a very complicated patient with many problems, I should habitually set concrete clinical goals before I get lost in. There are many, many, many problems. All right. After all that, let's see how Doctor Mitnick thinks through this case. The next thing is really what is driving it. When I see a rapid drop in sodium like this, one of my first questions is just to rule out pseudo hyponatremia, and so for that, I would need to know what the glucose is. When I see a rapid decline in Anything or rapid incline in anything, I always think about things that we did to the patient, so things that are iatrogenic. And one of the big causes is drugs. And so one thing that I think is very important is my first perioperative point is to always take a look at the OR flow sheet. All electronic medical records and paper records. Sometimes it's very hard to know what actually happened in the OR if you just look at. The med administrations that happened in the hospital, you might miss some things that happened in the OR. See which medications were actually given. See how much fluid was actually given. See how much blood loss actually occurred. See how many pressors were given, and not just trust the brief post-op note. Reason why this is important in this particular patient is this particular patient was getting oxytocin, and I presume she also got fluids、uh, during the OR. A rare occurrence, but something that is concerning. 
that can definitely occur is oxytocin combined with excessive IV fluids can cause a water intoxication syndrome. She sounds like she's hypervolemic in terms of the fact that she has edema, but there are still multiple causes of her hyponatremia. Preeclampsia very rarely can have hyponatremia. And if it's an SIADH picture, which is essentially the same reason, the SIADH is very similar to the reason why you get this hyponatremia with oxytocin and presumably with preeclampsia as well, you'd be managing it very similarly as well. You'd be avoiding any hypotonic solutions, try to avoid her taking free water by mouth. There are a lot of things that are done on those services that I'm not familiar with. And going into the case, being very well aware that you are endeavoring on things that you might not be comfortable with is very important. I think in consultative medicine, I am looking up stuff so much more than I am in my usual day-to-day. And that's just part of it. And also pairing with people who know this well is very important. The oxytocin question is not something I would presume to be correct about. It's something that I will question. I will talk to the obstetricians, the MFMs, and I'll say like, listen, this is an entity that exists. Do you think that I'm barking up the wrong tree by considering oxytocin and fluid to be the ideology of this? They might say they do this all the time and never see this. And that would be helpful. I have to acknowledge their expertise. When Dr. Mitnick mentioned going through the OR flow sheet, my mind went, oh, that's the painful part about taking a consult. Looking at events and medications through a separate record-keeping system, going through medications or events that I don't quite understand, it's treading through unfamiliar mental environment that definitely slows me down every time. It's something that adds to my cognitive load, even when those records may or may not be completely unrelated to the consult question. I wonder if it brings extra cognitive load to experts like Dr. Mitnick when he starts a consult case, though. I bet it doesn't anymore. I would guess it's an automatic habit for him by now. Zhang, I don't know about you, but severe hyponatremia due to preeclampsia or oxytocin or any OB-related medication, totally foreign territory for me. And I assume it's the case for most internists. It's actually interesting because the way in which he thinks about this patient's hyponatremia is immediately recognizable. It's how any of us would think about hyponatremia in a medicine patient. Real or not real, iatrogenic or not, volume up, volume down, or normal. Dr. Minnick had to apply this familiar framework in a very unfamiliar domain where none of us has sufficient domain knowledge. And I have to be honest with you, when I start this consult, I actually completely overlooked the possibility of oxytocin being a culprit. So I was wondering, why is it that I missed something like this, but he didn't? I can't tell you the answer to that for certain, Cindy. But if you noticed, our discussant is describing his thought process as one of backward reasoning. And I think that's potentially significant to your question. Backward reasoning? That's a phrase I haven't heard since episode one. Can you refresh my memory? What is that? Sure. Remember we said that forward reasoning is data-driven reasoning. It's where a clinician starts with the raw data, the symptoms, the signs, the findings, and by putting these things together, they work their way towards the diagnosis. Backwards reasoning is hypothesis-driven, where you come up with a conjecture, then you go back to the data and see if things fit. For example, in this case, the theory would be, is this something we did to her? Is it medication-related? 
our action, we'll go back, we'll examine the OR flow sheet and the medication history closely. Oh, is it oxytocin related? Well, does that fix the picture? And let's look into it. That's what I'm talking about. Got it. Now, in real life, it doesn't make too much sense to be cognizant of if we are going forward or backward, right? We probably go in both directions interchangeably when we solve a case. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is descriptive vocabulary. It is not prescriptive. Here, though, it's worth pointing out that Dr. Mitnick took a backward reasoning approach. It's a signal that he's deliberately examining his data with extra caution because he is in an unfamiliar domain. Remember, we said that backward reasoning is a strategy that takes both time and effort. Imagine going through a case and actively making a hypothesis, going back to find data that supports or overturns it, and then doing it over and over again until you get to the right diagnosis. It's not how we typically reason when we go through a relatively quote-unquote easy case. So I don't disagree with any of that. Cindy, but for the sake of argument, I'll challenge you here and I'll ask you, how is that special? When any of us staffs a consult case, it is very common to pause and ask, can this be iatrogenic? So it seems very natural to switch to a backwards reasoning approach. So if there's a deeper significance to this observation, Cindy, I think you ought to explain it. I'm so glad you mentioned it because that's a perfect segue for me to bring out what I really want to talk about in this case adaptive expertise. We are all very familiar with the idea of routine expertise. It's what's been modeled in morning reports in our past episodes. Someone who effectively uses their sophisticated knowledge memory structures to solve routine problems. Adaptive expertise is something else. So for any of you who may have heard of the term adaptive expertise, just be aware it is a phrase with slightly different definitions in different fields. Researchers in healthcare would define adaptive expertise as the ability to use existing clinical knowledge structures to come up with novel solutions when they face complex, unfamiliar problems. Think of a surgeon who had done hundreds and hundreds of appendectomy. All of a sudden, he's asked to do an emergent appendectomy in the middle of the battlefield with limited supplies and resources. What he possesses to carry out that procedure successfully is what we call adaptive expertise. Adaptive expertise is the quality that depictions of doctors in popular culture seem to possess in infinite abundance. Think about ship's doctors on Star Trek curing planet-wide plagues, for example, or Dr. Gregory House, you know, performing surgery, even though he's boarded in what, rheumatology? That's, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. For the purpose of this episode, though, I would like to use the broader definition of adaptive expertise when it was first introduced by Hateno and Inagaki, one that focuses less on coming up with innovative solutions, but more on how an expert adapts in an unfamiliar environment. It's the ability to perform at a relatively high level in an unfamiliar situation because the person is able to transfer their knowledge or skill set appropriately to solve a problem in a previously not-encountered fashion. There's a well-known study on this topic in which researchers challenged expert historians to come up with a thesis by analyzing literature from the Civil War era. So the first historian they interviewed was a specialist in Civil War history. So their analysis was, as you might expect, very rich, and very sophisticated, and very efficient. The second historian was an equally accomplished academic, but not a specialist in the Civil War era, so he floundered at first. 
But the authors observed that, given enough time, he was able to put together a coherent analysis, and he did this by adapting specific strategies. Authors noted the way that he asked questions, that he had a habit of continuously revisiting his earlier assessments, and that he very methodically reconciled apparent contradictions between source texts. Notably, these strategies were not used prominently by the first historian. He could rely on his pre-existing knowledge to make large inferences and leaps. So one might say the second historian's use of these adaptive strategies were a marker of inexperience, right? A marker that he was outside his domain of comfort. Nevertheless, they enabled him to succeed. So similarly in medicine, when we're dealing with unfamiliar problems, we often don't know enough to make sound inferences, to engage in the sort of grand data-driven leaps and forward reasoning that we like to glorify. Instead, we flail. We speculate, we hypothesize, then we go backward into the data to see what sticks. It's definitely not as sublime. But ultimately, what matters in the end is how well we implement and balance these two strategies. In this case, the patient's sodium was dropping at a precipitous rate, which triggered the iatrogenic hypothesis and led to the close examination of the medication list. But does every case warrant the same kind of stance? Every time we staff a surgical console, it's so easy to open up the OR flow sheet and see a sea of unfamiliar medications and be tempted to ask, hmm, is this problem ahead caused by something iatrogenic that I do not know about? And before I know it, I would be looking at every single one of those medications one by one. And that's not really an effective use of my time when I staff every surgical consult, right? No, no, of course not. That instinct, being able to recognize when that approach will be profitable versus when it will be wasteful, that is a mark of the adaptive expert. It's funny you mentioned that. I definitely want to come back to that point later in this episode. But now that I'm hearing you say this out loud, Cindy, I... I have to ask, are we just saying experts just implement and execute the same strategies but better? Because that is an unsatisfying answer. I feel like that's not what our segment is supposed to be about. How do we get better? That, that's the question. I agree with you. But I also have to be honest with you. I don't have an answer to that. I hope I have convinced you at this point that when we reason in an unfamiliar environment, we slow down, but we also consciously or unconsciously utilize different reasoning strategies that may compromise efficiency and may or may not be appropriate for the situation. I think that being cognizant of that fact is at least the first step. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash 50 Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. 
That's the code CORAM50 at factormeals.com slash CORAM50. So far, we've discussed the many environmental factors that add to our cognitive load, unfamiliar physical environments, ambiguity of questions in consult settings, the increased difficulty in acquiring the raw data, like OR flow sheets, and the stress that we experience when we are in an unfamiliar domain, when we lack sufficient domain knowledge. Dr. Mednick actually identified one more factor for us. I mean, and that's part of the stress about getting called to labor and delivery, that no matter what the situation, the internist being called to labor and delivery is a connection between something that's negative that's going on with something that was supposed to be positive. And that conflict is always dramatic. It's always much more dramatic than the geriatric patient who comes in with pneumonia, because that's not surprising. It can be still be significant for the patient, but it doesn't have that conflict of this is supposed to be a happy moment in my life. Why am I seeing an internist? Why am I seeing a critical care doctor? And so that conflict uh, induces a tremendous amount of emotion and often in a patient who's not used to hospitalization and not used to illness. So it's a very, very difficult situation. I remember when I staffed this consult, I asked the primary team if the patient was having any neurologic symptoms due to the drastic drop in sodium, and they told me that the patient had a headache from crying all night. I distinctly remember standing at her door and doing deep breathing before I entered the patient's room. I just didn't know how to approach her because I was never trained to care for a patient who just went through what she went through. Do I offer condolences? Do I avoid the elephant in the room and go straight to my interview? It's interesting you say that, Cindy, because we're not strangers to emotionally fraught situations in medicine, right? We've all had hour-long family meetings. We've been at palliative extubations. We all did that OSCE on breaking bad news. And heck, we've all experienced COVID. But I'm guessing what you mean, Cindy, is that this was as much an unfamiliar emotional context as it was an unfamiliar clinical one. Some of my emotional discomfort definitely came from my unfamiliarity with this specific situation. I know how to walk into a room and tell a patient about their newly diagnosed metastatic cancer and motive organ failure because I was trained to do that. But I did not know how to walk into a room where a young woman had just lost her child. Our discussion here is wise enough to anticipate this problem. Identifying these emotional stressors is the first step in managing them. That way, we have more time and cognitive bandwidth to think about the actual clinical problem. Dr. Mitnick's suggestion is to ally with the primary team, checking with them before visiting the patient, or maybe even go to the bedside together if their relationship is good, just so we're not random people barging into the room. So why don't we move on to the lab results that our discussant was interested in seeing? So just to recap... On the morning of hospital day two, when medicine was consulted, the serum sodium was 117. Her glucose was normal. Her urine osmolality at that time was 442. Her urine sodium was undetectable with a FINA of 0.1%. Her urine protein to creatinine ratio was 12,000 milligrams per gram. On exam, she was alert, normal vital signs, fully oriented, answering questions appropriately. Her family, her nursing staff hadn't noticed any confusion or abnormal behavior. In the afternoon, the next repeat sodium was stable at 117. And by this point, the patient's urine output starts to pick up. And she puts out a total of 1.1 liters during that eight-hour nursing shift. 
listeners, what do you think? What would you write in that initial consult note? So her kidneys are responding to her hyponatremic state. She has no sodium at all in her urine. So it's possible her insult already occurred and that now she'll start to improve on her own. And maybe she doesn't require any intervention yet. She's probably going to require a diuretic to get rid of some of this edema. But if her sodium starts to improve like this, and she's very starting to improving with, with minimal intervention, except for withdrawing hypotonic fluids, she definitely has a lot of protein in her urine. So it's consistent with her preeclampsia. So she's not fully out of this window. I think fluid management is going to be something we have to keep a close eye on. It's a confusing picture to be sure. The urine in the morning, the osmolality was high. But with that sudden increase in the urine output and the stability in the sodium level, Dr. Mitnick is suggesting that whatever caused the patient to be hyponatremic may have been in the process of reversing. He's saying the correct action might be to watch to see whether her kidneys put out enough free water. The patient's urine output continued to increase. So on hospital day two, she had a total urine output of 5.5 liters. And on day three, an additional four liters output. And as this was happening, her serum sodium steadily increased. From 117, it rose to 125 by the end of day two and to 133 by the end of day three and normalized on day four. So what happened, Cindy? So in the end, she did not require much intervention. It was difficult to tell if her hyponatremia was driven by hypervolemia secondary to preeclampsia or was there a combination of hypervolemia plus SIDH. But it became really clear that in the next few hours, she entered a state of brisk autodiuresis, which according to the OB team and the senior nurses on the floor, it's not uncommonly seen in patients recovering from preeclampsia. Like what Dr. Mitnick predicted, it all came down to fluid shift at the end. Have you seen any other cases like this since? I've seen one more, not as prominent like this. You, oh, interesting. You see, you've seen one more. Yeah, a lot milder though. But same phenomenon. Is there any explanation for why this happens? Um, so I'm not quite sure. Before this case, I've never seen patients with preeclampsia. Haven't seen that many OB patients, to be honest. Seeing a human body retain an autodiurase more than 10 liters of fluid in the span of three days, it was fascinating and scary at the same time. So I read that a little bit on severe hyponatremia in preeclampsia patients. I learned that it's very rare, actually. There are case series out there. But in complicated cases, the management even involved consideration of fetal sodium, risk of fetal seizures, fetal urine output. And most importantly, the determination of timing of urgent delivery. So most patients end up like your patient? They do okay? I would say in most cases, once the patients get out of the preeclampsia state after delivery, their sodium seems to always rapidly normalize like in our patient. Hmm. Interesting. Preeclampsia patients with severe hyponatremia are thought to have hypervolemia, SIDH, or a combination of the two. In patients with hypervolemia, it's thought that 
inadequate placental blood flow leads to placental angiogenic factors and endothelial growth factors, which leads to maternal vascular dysregulation and ultimately proteinuria and edema. The volume retention and in most patients, nephrotic range proteinuria lead to low effective circulating volume and then the turning on of ADH, much like in cirrhosis in heart failure patients. And then you mentioned SIDH as another mechanism? Yeah, SIDH in preeclampsia is more complicated. Of course, there are pregnancy-associated factors like stress, pain, or the oxytocin that are maintenance spotted. But those factors are fairly common, right? But we don't see that many severely hyponatremic cases in preeclampsia patients. So there are some postulated mechanisms to be honest, I don't quite understand them. Some say that the defective placenta in patients with preeclampsia doesn't produce sufficient vasopressinase, that the placental enzyme that inactivates ADH. It's a mouthful. I'm reading what I do not understand at all. You know, for a little while there, I let myself really think I finally knew everything there was to know about hyponatremia. But now you tell me there's a placental enzyme called vasopressinase. So Cindy, you'd asked me at the beginning of the episode what my personal comfort level with hyponatremia is. And you also mentioned that most of us, regardless of our level of training, have seen a lot of hyponatremia cases, at least in medicine. So just one more time, I'm going to paraphrase something that uh, Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal has said that we've quoted before, which is that there is a difference between an experienced clinician and an expert clinician. We had to ever choose a motto for hoofbeat Cindy, I think that might be it. For any given clinical problem, most of us learn and we improve. And then we get to a point where we're good enough. And then what happens next, I think, is key. In many cases, we stop learning. Seeing a hundred elderly ladies with Tientos diets on thiazides, you know, back to back, that would make me feel very comfortable about seeing hyponatremia. But obviously, that experience, that would not make me an expert. If I was striving to be an expert in hyponatremia, I would be seeking out the kinds of complex cases that, you know, you just gave to us from you, my colleague, from journal articles, from conferences, from podcast episodes, and so on. It's a sad but simple truth, I think. Comfort breeds complacency. And conversely, putting ourselves in unfamiliar situations, that's the key. It's postulated that variation in daily practice is a necessary condition to build adaptive expertise. So listening to Dr. Mitnick's response to this case made me wonder, how can I think better next time I get the hyponatremia consult from OB? Or to take that one step further, what do I need to do to be a better medicine consultant like Dr. Mitnick? How do I feel less helpless when I staff a consult in the unfamiliar surgical OB world when there is a lot of domain-specific knowledge? I mean, we can only scratch the surface of your question, Cindy, in a 30-minute Hoofbeats episode. But for starters, I think it'd be helpful to first identify what are the hallmarks of an adaptive expert. Well, first of all, they have a deeper understanding of their own domain. And I think that deeper knowledge often reflects a tendency to be dissatisfied with answers that are merely sufficient, right? For these clinicians, simply completing a task isn't enough. The co-equal goal is always to deepen and strengthen knowledge, even at the cost of being a little bit uncomfortable or of having to discard old knowledge structures that prove inadequate. Allow me to take a tangent here. 
because what you said reminded me how、um, I encountered some brilliant providers during the height of COVID. When things were really bad, our institution activated an army of volunteers to help care for COVID patients who were hospitalized. Some of these people are endocrinologists, ophthalmologists, residents from the orthopedics department. Needless to say, I really truly appreciate their help, and we couldn't have survived without the extra hands on the floor. While most of them found hospital medicine very foreign to them, I did notice that some of them thrived in the crazy foreign. Even foreign to me, COVID era hospital medicine better than others, and all those individuals possess what you mentioned—that readiness and the eagerness to adapt and learn medical knowledge, even though they were not expected to、uh, come back to medicine again. And those qualities in my mind are what sets me apart from experts like Dr. Mitnick. I was consulted at our orthopedic hospital for somebody who was post shoulder surgery, and pretty recently post shoulder surgery. It was within twelve hours of shoulder surgery. The patient was feeling short of breath and was having significant shortness of breath. And I was a little bit new to consultative medicine at the time, and so I, you know, did have to look up causes of shortness of breath post shoulder surgery just to make sure that I had a、uh, good sense of is there anything specific to shoulder surgery? Actually, I thought there would be nothing specific to it, but there is. So the very often patients get a regional block for shoulder surgery, and that regional block can actually cause paralysis of a hemidiaphragm. And so I got a chest X-ray, and sure enough, the chest X-ray had a raised hemidiaphragm on the side of his shoulder surgery. Earlier this episode, we said it's so easy to go backwards and ask, "Is this iatrogenic? Is this console problem related to the procedure or anesthesia?" When we take a console case, right? Well, I was actually surprised. After hearing Doctor Mitnick, that I never once looked at diaphragm paralysis in shoulder surgery, even though I staffed many consult cases at the affiliated orthopedic hospital before. And I think that's my cognitive ease talking, right? A dyspnea consult from the orthopedics team seems so bread and butter. It doesn't let me that oh, I'm treading through unfamiliar environment. Kind of nervous feeling that we were talking about in previously, and usually I just fall back to the same schema that got me through ninety percent of the medicine cases. I mean, when I staff a case like that, I would still do enough backward reasoning and ask questions like, "Oh, is this heart failure related from too much intra-procedure fluid, or is this pulmonary embolism, or is this post-op pneumonia?" But I usually am confined to the comfort zone of common medical etiologies. But Doctor Mitnick here was more intellectually curious than I am, and、uh, obviously also better asking the right question. Another reason we might not be digging deeper is assuming the primary team would take care of the domain-specific problems and telling oneself, "Well, I'm here to deal with." My problems, right? In my case, the medicine problems. Surely, the anesthesiologist is going to notice that diaphragmatic paralysis they caused, right? Is it really my place to comment on that? Whenever I talk to Doctor Mitnick and my colleagues who did a lot of co-management shifts and became co-management experts, I'm always very impressed by their surgical domain knowledge that I'm sure they didn't learn just from staffing consults. 
but they definitely did a lot of additional readings, research, talking to the surgical teams. Experts like them obviously don't confine themselves and have been actively seeking knowledge outside of the expected medicine domain. And I used to do that when I first learned to staff consults as a resident. Well, back then I did it in the aimless fashion where, because I was not good at this backwards thinking, I would be reading through every procedure complication or be looking up every anesthesia medication. I mean, it was a very stupid way to do that, but I was a lot more intellectually curious. I wonder what happened to me. Why am I not doing that anymore? Well, the factors we mentioned in this episode are always going to be in the way. Time constraints, caseloads, the cognitive strain from various sources. Well, I know it's not typical good hoofbeats advice, um, but I hope by talking about it helps us be more cognizant of those constraints. I also think it's probably helpful to make concrete goals, like from now on, every time I'm on council, I'll try to take one case and do some case-related learning from that. And it is also about being smart with your limited resources, knowing which case warrants that comb through which lessons are worth your valuable brain space. All right, today we talked about how we do not reason in a vacuum, and there are a lot of contextual factors that interfere with how we think. And by seeing, discuss, and approach a console case from obstetrics, we had the opportunity to talk about the concept of adaptive expertise and how it is a distinct skill set to be able to apply your knowledge in an unconventional and unfamiliar environment. Although very rare, I got to take care of a patient with severe hyponatremia associated with preeclampsia, which reminds me I'm not an expert in hyponatremia. And once again, the idea of cognitive ease. Repeat exposure to a problem does not make me an expert. All right, listeners, that should do it for this episode. As always, let us know what you think. Special thanks to Drs. Amy O, Shreya Trivedi, and Marty Freed. And thanks to our audio editor for this episode, Harit Shah, along with our other Core IM colleague. I would like to say thank you again to Dr. Mitnick for both helping us with this episode and also all his work on the co-management service that allowed me to learn something about consult medicine after my residency training. I sincerely hope that after all the COVID frenzies pass, the program will have a chance to revive again. Dr. Fang and I are general internists and faculty with the NYU School of Medicine. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining us with Coriam. I'm John Wong. And I'm Cindy Fang. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.